0: Good morning, church. Uh, today's Bible readings from Romans 3, verse 21 to 26. And it's page 913 in the Black Bibles if you're using that. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of God.
1: Mesere me de secundum magnum mesicordium taum. Do you get any of that? Well, I want you to imagine you're a common person in Christendom 500 years ago in the 1500s. Maybe you're a country folk working the farm to make ends meet, or, or you're a city folk working as blacksmith to make ends meet. So like most people, you're uneducated and illiterate. Uh, you can't read, you can't write, and you fear God. So you look to Rome as your mother, and you look to the Pope as your father. Uh, They're your irreplaceable parents. uh, Without father pope, there's no church. Without mother church in Rome, uh, there's no salvation. And so the Roman church is very powerful. Uh, Even emperors and kings of the land submit to their authority. Not only can they wield the sword and declare war, they also decide how you can receive God's grace. And so you go to church for Mass, Uh, and, and it's all in Latin. Uh, you don't understand a word. In fact, most clergy don't even understand what they're saying, like me just then. It was easier for them to learn by rote than to learn a new language. Now, even though you don't understand a word, you go anyway, uh, because what you need isn't teaching from the Bible and faith in God. What you're told you need is to trust the Pope and have faith in the church, uh, to follow its rituals and to do its rights to receive God's grace. And you'd be desperate for God's grace, wouldn't you? Uh, Because you're taught that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. Uh, While he's a holy and righteous judge, uh, you're neither holy nor righteous. And so when Jesus returns, you're going to be in deep trouble. You're not going to go to hell, of course, because you have faith in Jesus. But you're certainly not going to go to heaven either because you're not holy like Jesus. And so when you die, you don't go to heaven. You go to heaven's waiting room which is called purgatory. And now you might spend a few months in purgatory, uh, or maybe a few years, or even a few thousand years. It all just depends on how sinful you've lived your life. The more sin, the more sin to purge, so that you become 100% righteous, 100% pure in God's eyes, so that you can enter heaven's gates. But, of course, purgatory isn't a nice place to be. It's full of suffering and torment. I mean, purging sins, getting rid of your sins, the sins that you've committed all your life, isn't an easy process, isn't a nice journey. And so you rely on the church to dispense God's grace, to give you more grace, since the priests are the only ones who can turn on the taps of grace. Uh, These taps of grace, uh, there are seven of them called the seven sacraments, the seven arteries of the body of Christ, as it were. Uh, So it includes baptism and confirmation, the mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and the last rites. But it was the mass that was the central uh, uh, rite uh, uh, to the whole system. Uh, In the mass, uh, Christ's body is literally sacrificed afresh over and over again. Uh, you see, at the heart and center of the Mass isn't the preaching of God's Word, but repeating Christ's bloody sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. So when the priest uh, raises the bread and says in Latin, hoc ex corpus milm, that, that, that is, this is my body, at that moment, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. And you would receive God's grace, not by taking it and eating it, because you would only do that once a year. It's so holy and so revered that to receive God's grace, you only had to merely look at the bread that the priest holds up, that literally becomes the body of Christ at that very moment. And so if you're really devout, and you're really fearful of God's judgment it's to come, what you do is that you run from church to church to to go to as many masses as possible, to look at the body of Christ as many times as possible so that you receive God's grace more and more. But the problem is that when you start hearing hocus corpus meum, what does it sound like to you? Hocus pocus. It sounds like hocus-pocus. That's where we get it from, hocus-pocus. And increasingly, it became more and more difficult for you to distinguish between ritual and church religion and church practice with magic and superstition. And so when you couple that with the fear of God and the fear of Jesus as judge, you do anything to be saved. Rather than seeing Jesus as a loving saviour, you see Jesus as this doomsday judge. He's so holy, who can approach him? And so you don't pray to him. He's too holy to be approached. And so who do you pray to? Well, you pray to his mum, Mary. Uh, But if she is too holy and you're fearful of her too, well, then you can pray to her mum, Anne, or to any other saint. And of course, you're taught that the saints are those that the church declares as being exceptionally holy. So holy, in fact, that they've got too much holiness They they, they skip purgatory altogether. They go straight to heaven. But not only that, because they've been so good, so holy, that their bank account of holiness is overflowing. And so what you can do is tap into their holiness and get some of their holiness so that you decrease the time that you have to spend in purgatory. And so their relics uh, could transfer merit to you by looking and touching their relics you get some of their grace. You tap into their bank account, as it were. You receive a gift of merit, or better known as an indulgence. Uh, now, in fact, the castle uh, in Wittenberg, uh, the castle church has nine aisles displaying over 19,000 relics. Uh, here, here, here are some things that you might see uh, uh, there. Uh, there. You could see a wisp of straw from Christ's crib a strand of his beard, a nail from the cross, a piece of bread from the Last Supper, a twig from Moses' burning bush, a few of Mary's hairs and some bits of her clothing, as well as innumerable teeth and bones from celebrated saints. Veneration of each piece was worth an indulgence of 100 days, with a bonus one for each aisle, meaning the pious visitor could top up more than 1.9 million days of purgatory. So you go to this castle, you review every relic over and over again, down the nine aisles. You can save yourself 1.9 million days in purgatory. What a bargain. But of course, if you can't afford the time, and if you can't make your way to the castle of Wittenberg, then what you could do is buy indulgences. Not just for yourself, you can even die, but buy indulgences for your loved ones, those who have died. Uh, as Joan Tetzel would say, as he Uh, went from street to street, from city to city, declaring in Germany, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Place your penny on the drum, the pearly gates open, and in strolls mum. No longer did you have to confess your sins. Your money would do. Getting into heaven was now a bargain. While people got off purgatory, the Pope got lots of money. Money to rebuild Saint Peter's Basilica, which now still stands in the Vatican. It was big business. It's in this context that Martin Luther was born. He was born in Saxony, Germany, in fourteen eighty three. He was the son of Hans and Margaret. He was a bright child, went to University of Erfurt, graduated with two degrees in fifteen oh five. He was to study law and become a lawyer. But at the age of 21, he was caught in a July storm. A lightning bolt hit so close that it knocked him to the ground without any chance of, of making a final confession or to say his last rites. He was so terrified uh, of his fate in the afterlife that he vowed at that instant, Saint Anne, who's Anne again? The mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Right? St. Anne, he prays to her, help me, I shall become a monk. And so his life was spared. And to uh, his father, who was furious at all his expensive education gone to waste, Martin Luther went to the monastery. Now, a a monastery was a world of rules. Rules for how and when to bow, rules for how you walk. You talk, where to look and when. Rules for how you hold your utensils. Every few hours, he'd go to a service in the chapel. Yet the more he did, the more he became troubled. Uh, You see, if he'd let his eyes wander during chapel, he'd sinned. If he laughed, he sinned. If he sang poorly, he sinned. If if, if that was me here and, and this was all sin, I'd be sinning all the time. I'm completely tone deaf. Countless sins for Martin Luther to to have his sins absolved. And so what do you do? How do you absolve your sins? Well, he didn't want to cut any corners when his salvation was at stake. And so he used his weekends to catch up. He'd go to confession. And he'll confess to another Mongol priest for hours and hours, up to six hours at a time. But the problem was that as he detailed all his sins and confessed all his sins, it went on for so long that he would miss the next chapel and thereby sin again. And so he constantly looked inside of himself to, to see was whether his motivation was right. He asked himself, was I truly repentant or did I just want to avoid God's punishment? And now in 1507, he was to say his first mass. And it was a terrifying experience because he's only ever prayed to the saints and at most to Mary, but now he had to speak to Jesus, the judge of the earth. He was horrified, he was terrified of that experience. But then when he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in his cell in the monastery tower, it all clicked into place. He said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. But then he read Romans 1:17. For in the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What Luther discovered at this moment was the gospel. The pure gospel that salvation is by faith alone, not by faith and your effort, not by faith and your good works and your good deeds, here, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That is, he didn't have to go through purgatory. He didn't have to buy indulgences. But through the gospel and understanding the gospel, he realized that he had a free ticket to heaven. What the Catholic Church taught kept Luther out of heaven's gates but what the Bible taught opened up heaven's gates. Now today we begin a five-week series on the five solas of the Reformation, the five pinnacle doctrines that the Bible teaches that are uncompromisable, that we as Protestants, as Anglicans, uphold as true and orthodox. And as we study these five schol- solas with our, open, our Bibles open, We'll be doing it against the backdrop of the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. For that was the context in which the Reformers found themselves. You see, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism are two very different religions. There's a lot of overlap, but they lead you to very different directions. So both would argue that you must believe in Jesus, that you must have faith in Christ to receive grace. Roman Catholics have always believed in Jesus and in grace, but their understanding of what Jesus has done is insufficient. How you receive grace comes not just from Jesus, but from other means as well. Now, it's important for us to pause and recognize that what the Roman Catholic Church teaches may not necessarily be what every Roman Catholic believes. In fact, they might not even be aware of the official teaching at all. The same is true in Protestant churches, isn't it? That though the official teaching of the Anglican church, for example, is biblical, yet you will still find Anglicans who are legalistic or liberal. This is true of any denomination. And so what we must do as we study the Reformation and history is to learn from history so that we don't make the same mistakes. And it should drive us back to the gospel, to the Bible, so that we might cling on Christ alone. And so may this series deepen our faith in Christ and grow our love for Roman Catholics. So what is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church On faith. Now this might oversimplify things, but it's basically like this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you need to have faith in Jesus. And when you do, it gets you out of hell. But it doesn't get you into heaven. It's a halfway, half paid ticket to heaven. It's a bit like this. This is a say a ticket to heaven. What the Roman Catholic Church has done is to tear it into two. And what they're saying is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you get this. You get this half-paid ticket. It's half-paid because you're still a sinner. You still do the wrong thing. You're not perfect. You're not righteous. You're not like Jesus yet. And heaven's only for the righteous. So therefore, what you need to do, is you need to earn the other half. You need to become more loving, more caring, more righteous, so that your works, your good deeds, married with Jesus' sacrifice, will give you the full ticket into heaven. That's why their seven sacraments is so important. That's why their prayers to the saints, confessing of sins, doing penance is so important. That's why purgatory is part of the process because if you're not good enough in this life, then it's in purgatory that you can do the rest to get your full ticket. You see, for Roman Catholicism, getting into heaven isn't a free gift. It's something you must earn and do in addition to the half-free gift that you get from Jesus. It's grace grace plus works gets you into heaven. So Roman Catholics are taught that they must do good works. It's essential for salvation. And when they do, they're rewarded with the increase of grace. This grace further justifies them, makes them more righteous, and they be, therefore become more holy and more pleasing to God. And so when the day of judgment comes, the basis upon which God will judge them is in part what Jesus has done And what they have done, effectively, they've collapsed justification and sanctification. Unfortunately, what the Roman Catholic Church taught in the 16th century is still taught by the Roman Catholic Church officially today. There's a book with the Pope's stamp of approval on it called The Dogmatic Theology for the Laity, and he says this, It's a universally accepted dogma of the Catholic Church that man in union with the grace of the holy spirit must merit heaven by his good works you hear that the grace of the holy spirit good works we can actually merit heaven as our reward heaven must be fought for we have to earn heaven now i want you to be I want to be clear here that i'm not well, what i'm trying to do is trying to be as objective as possible So what I'm doing is I'm quoting from their official teaching. And I'll show you what the Bible teaches. So let me encourage you to do the same. Try to be as objective as possible, to understand as much as possible, and learn from what the Bible teaches and what the official teachings of the church is. So that's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. To be saved, you need Jesus, and you need to be good enough. But what does the Bible teach? Now let's turn to the Bible. How can we be righteous? How can we be acceptable to God? If we stand before the pearly gates of heaven, on what basis will God let us in? Well, the Bible certainly doesn't teach justification by works, it teaches justification by faith. We already saw this in Romans chapter 1, in verse 17, and we see it in today's passage in Romans chapter 3. From 21 to 26. It's a great passage. The whole passage is to do with how a person can be considered just or holy or righteous before a holy God. Now, the context up to this point in Romans is this. We're all doomed. Whether you're a Gentile or Jew, you're doomed. Everyone is a sinner of God, against God. We're all ungodly. We all deserve God's judgment, period. So Romans chapter 3 verse 10 tells us there's no one righteous not even one quoting Psalm. And then we get to Romans chapter 3 verse 21 what a lot of theologians like to call God's big but. It is the biggest but in the whole Bible. Because the end of the story is not that God declares you're all doomed, you're all sinners, you're all unrighteous, but God's big but. Now comes in because it tells us the hope we can have from being doomed Romans 3:21 but now apart from the law that is apart from trying to obey the law to find our righteousness to be holy in accordance to the law apart from the law the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified that is the whole bible has been telling us this Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, the law and the prophets. And this righteousness comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And the only way to become righteous or to be justified before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, this righteousness from God, this righteousness is given. That is, the righteousness is a gift. You don't earn God's righteousness. You're given God's righteousness. How do you get it? Through faith. What's faith? Faith is simply trust. Faith in Jesus Christ, the object of your trust, is in Jesus to all who believe, not just to some, but to anyone, all. Kids, men, women, the elderly, everyone, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ you can be made right before God, you'll be made right before God for all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We're all sinners in the same way, and we can only be saved in the same way, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. This is why God can save us. Why you can be declared right? Because Christ was presented as a sacrifice through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before and unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a mouthful, isn't it? But the simple point is... God is just. He imparts his justice, his righteousness upon us when we put our faith in Jesus who died for us. we become righteous only by believing in Jesus. Full stop. We don't become righteous by believing in Jesus and being a good person. The ticket to heaven is not two pieces. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin and the filth and the dirt but he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. So when we put our faith in Jesus, God declares us as righteous. Our righteousness comes directly from God and only from God, not from ourselves. And it's a declaration. As a judge declares an innocent, innocent, so God declares us righteous when we put our faith in Jesus. It's entirely upon what Jesus has done not something that we have to earn. And so, because we're declared righteous when we believe in Jesus, our ticket is paid in full by Jesus. You see, justification is not a process. Justification is an event. It's a declaration. Righteousness doesn't come from within, but from without. Not from what we do, but from what we receive. Because being righteous before God isn't about being right. It's about being right before God. You see, God doesn't want our goodness, for we aren't good. We can't be good. He wants our trust, for he is good. And therefore, when we put our trust in Jesus, he declares us as right. Now, in one of Martin Luther's uh, works, The Freedom of a Christian, he explains this by giving us an illustration, a metaphor. He tells us of a king who marries a prostitute, an allegory for the marriage of King Jesus with us, the wicked sinners. So when the king marries the prostitute, the prostitute becomes a queen. It's not that she made herself queenly and so won the right to be a queen. She was a wicked harlot through and through, but when she got married, it was an event. Her status was changed in that instant. She was a prostitute, but now she's a queen. And it was all because of the king. But even though she's now a queen, she's a prostitute at heart. That is who she is. But she's a queen by status. A prostitute at heart, a queen by status. The status was given to her, but who she is, is a prostitute. And in the same way, when we put our trust in Jesus, we are simultaneously a sinner at heart, for that is who we are. But our status is that we are children of God. So what the queen has now belongs to the king and vice versa. And so she can confidently say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. It is in this security that the prostitute can now become queenly at heart, to be who she is meant to be. That is, salvation is not faith plus works. Salvation is by faith alone which leads to good works, to be the children of God that he saved us to be. And so like the queen, we desire to please our king. Not to become queen, but to be the queen we are. And that's what we call sanctification. So with Luther's rediscovery of the gospel and the free gift of salvation, To anyone who believes, on the 31st of October, 1517, just over 500 years ago, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door of All Saints Church. Four years later, he stands trial before the Holy Roman Emperor for his teachings. And on the evening of Wednesday, 16th of April, 1521, Martin Luther is escorted into the city of Worms. Over the next two days, Luther stands trial before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the defender of the church, and in front of him is a pile of books. He's asked if they're his books, and so if he will recant and reject everything he's taught. Luther tells them that they are his books, but he won't recant. He won't retract what he has said and taught, for he says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther's dismissed, but he's not arrested, because he had a letter of safe conduct, which guaranteed him 21 days of safe passage. But as soon as he leaves, on the 25th of April, he goes home. On his way home, at the same time, the emperor then imposes an imperial edict. Luther is declared an outlaw. Anyone can kill him without consequence. And so one of his supporters, Elector Frederick the Wise, orchestrates for Luther to be kidnapped, takes him to his castle where he's then protected. By now, the Reformation is in full swing and there's no coming back. The Roman Catholic Church calls for a council to evaluate once and for all the teachings of the Bible. They evaluate Luther's teachings and his quotes from Scripture. They call upon the Council of Trent, formed from 1545 to 63, 25 meetings over 18 years. The Roman Catholic Church meets and in the sixth session, Canon 12, they responded to the teachings of Romans chapter 3 in this way. If anyone says that faith which justifies is nothing else but, but trust in the divine mercy which pardons sin because of Christ, that is the gospel, or that it is trust alone, faith alone, by which we are justified, let him be anathema. That is, let him be excommunicated from the church without any hope to heaven's gates. Let him be anathema and excommunicate and send to hell. Let him be anathema and be cursed by the Council of Trent and by the Pope himself. If you believe in justification by faith alone, then you will never see Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholics can never be sure of their salvation. The Roman Catholic Church robs them of any assurance and the sweetest aspect of the gospel because they can never know if they're good enough, if they've done enough to enter the pearly gates. For them to be sure, to know is to be arrogant and presumptuous. But friends, the good news is that that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that God doesn't just want to save you. He wants you to know that you're saved. God doesn't just want to save you. He wants you to know that you're saved. And that happens when you put your faith in Jesus alone. The translation of the Latin words I said at the beginning of the sermon is this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy great mercy. And praise God, he has mercy on us through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom we have put our trust in for the salvation of our souls. So friends, if you're a Roman Catholic or not yet a Christian, can I just say that I'm so delighted that you're here today. I hope you found this sermon helpful in seeing that Not not what I think, but what the Bible teaches. And can I encourage you, if you'd like to find out more about what God says about justification by faith, how you can enter the pearly gates in Christ alone. And please read the Bible. Come to our discipleship teams. Keep coming to church to find out more. But maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you're like Luther before his conversion, and you're wondering whether you're good enough for God. When you stand before God at the pearly gates, will he open the gates for you and let you in? Maybe you've done some horrible things, even as a Christian, and you're wondering if God will accept you as you are. Well, I hope that Romans 3 reminds you that you can never be good enough for God, but that if you put your faith in Jesus, then God will see you as righteous as Jesus. But you, you, there's no purgatory. There's no relic that you need to go to. There's no indulgence you can buy. Simply trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of all your sins, the past, the present, and the future. But some of you might feel like your your faith is too small. I wish I had the faith of that person or that person. They have so much faith. Well, I hope that you've seen from Romans three that it's not the amount of faith that you have that will save you, but the object of your faith. We need childlike faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to be careful, don't we, that we must not make faith into a work. To think that faith is what we must do. For faith itself, as we've seen, is a gift from God. So friends, let's rejoice and praise our God that we're not saved by faith and works, but by faith alone in Christ. Amen.